The views, comments, and opinions of the following program do not necessarily reflect those of Morris Media Studios, MorrisMediaLive.com, or its affiliates. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Conversations with the Poetess. I am the Poetess and um, I'm your host. I got a call last week from a really good friend of mine that asked if I would be interested in interviewing the chief of police, Mr. Uh, Michael Moore, and of course I accepted, especially in today's climate. There's a lot of questions that the community has. And so in fact, I put a few questions or um, few posts out there for people to uh, include their questions. So without further ado, I would like to um, introduce uh, the Los Angeles uh, Chief of Police, Chief Moore. He has been on the force for over 36 years. He rose through ranks of police officer, detective, sergeant, and lieutenant, and during his tenure, he has worked various patrol, investigative, and administrative assignments throughout the city of LA. He also oversaw the, de uh, the Detective Bureau and Counterterrorism and Special Operations Bureau, as well as citywide jail. In 2015, Chief Moore was assigned as Director Office of Administrative Services, and in that position, he oversaw the department's fiscal, personnel, training, and various support operations. In 2018, he was sworn in by Mayor Garcetti as the 57th Chief of Police of the City of Los Angeles, and that is the third largest police force in the country, and I would really like to welcome Police Chief Moore. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. We are glad to have you. Um, there's been a lot going on with police officers and police agencies across the country. And I know that you've been catching a lot of uh, flack. So we just wanted to get a few questions to you and sure. gain some clarity on where you stand on a lot of these issues. And um, one of the biggest issues is the defunding of police. Now, according to brookings.edu, defund the police means reallocating or redirecting funding away from the police department and into more uh, community-oriented programs. Um, are you in support of this, or what is your feeling on defunding police? Well, when you talk to people about defunding police, uh, as many people as you talk to is as many definitions that you get back. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, I think the underlying issue is a community that feels like it has invested quite a bit, a lot of monies, a lot of public monies in public safety, and particularly to policing. And in that process of doing that, that they don't feel necessarily uh, as safe as they, they, they believe they should be, uh, given that size of the investment. And the challenges that we have today is that, uh, in part, they're right. They're, there's areas of, of work that uh, are given to law enforcement that really shouldn't be our responsibility. We've become the 911 of social services. Mm -hmm. And defund the police, to me, means at this moment in time, America, Los Angeles, is ready to look at what it asks police officers to do and what's fair to be asked of them. 
and to identify another resource, another center, some other disciplines that can do outreach and engagement for people experiencing homelessness, that can deal with people experiencing mental illness, that every time people pick up the phone and dial 911, right now you either get a police officer or a firefighter. And that really needs to change when you realize the tens of thousands of calls that really don't require either one and could benefit by having another set of discipline, another set of workers available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I look forward to this moment of really shifting uh, the, the levels of responsibility that we have and really seeing that it be reprioritized into other programs. I think there's a number of community-based organizations that stand at the ready to, to fill this space. And what the city council has done, what the mayor has sponsored, is a, a reallocation of $150 million mm -hmm. from our budget and has downsized the department uh, by nearly 500 personnel over the next six to seven months. And it's really going to require, not just it's not just an idea, it's really going to require that we stop handling tens of thousands of calls for service. And we willingly accept that because I think there are better resources, but we've got to get, that, uh, get those resources developed. We've got to get those people identified, and we have to get that ready because the public's still calling, and the public still expects its government to step forward and provide critical services. Right now it's saying it shouldn't always be a police officer, and I agree. Yeah, a lot of people, um, even some police officers I've seen um, on social media, feel like defunding the police is a totally bad thing, that money is going to be taken away, cops are going to be fired. Um, so do you feel like that's a total misconception of it, or is that part of it? Will well, cops lose their job? Will there be less resources for mm -hmm. uh, police officers because of defunding? So it depends on how it's implemented. Mm -hmm. There are voices in the conversation that believe that police should be abolished, mm -hmm. that, that the uh, police department, LAPD, should be dismantled. I don't agree with that, and I think most of Angelinos don't either. Mm -hmm. uh, but in those, in those spaces, in those narratives, it's easy for an officer to listen to that and say, my job's in jeopardy. Uh, I'm going to be uh, laid off or fired. Mm -hmm. There are uh, such instances across the country where they're talking about disbanding uh, police departments and they're talking about laying off here. Here in Los Angeles, I'm, I'm thankful for we have elected leadership that recognizes that LAPD uh, fills a critical need of a shared responsibility of public safety and that the men and women of LAPD, sworn and civilian, are needed. And what does need to happen at this moment is we need to look at what the social program supports are and are we as a city and as as a county are we investing enough in those activities and i'll say right now we're not we need to have outreach and, and engagement for people experiencing homelessness people who are medical and i'm sorry mental health professionals need to be available 24 hours a day seven days a week we need them by the hundreds and what we have right now is an absence of that so what happens is we become the agency of of first and last resort, and that's I'm sure this that's is a moment taxing. Well, and it's and it's it's not an area that we want to be in. Now, there's training, there's efforts that we've made to best qualify our people, but at the end of the day, they wear a badge, they wear a gun, and they wear a history of a police and what a police means in a community. And many times, it means to suppress or to or to occupy or to punish, and that's where we need to change that dialogue and to change it to where we are a partner, where we're reaching out and forming relationships based on a humanity amongst us. And part of that is getting us out of some of these encounters that just put us in a very What's bad position. What's it going to take to do that? Um, and what um, 
uh, you mentioned some of the um, things that you guys are handling. What departments do you feel like yeah. those should be allocated to, and what's it going to take for it to be allocated? So I think community-based organizations, faith-based, non-government organizations exist today in outreach and engagement on a number of fronts. If we look at uh, the city's gang reduction youth development, mm -hmm. their outreach and engagement with community-based organizations provide for trained uh, men and women to go into communities and to settle uh, brewing disputes, neighborhood mm -hmm. disputes, mm -hmm. angst between rival gang members. And these are individuals that many times come from the very neighborhoods or lifestyle in which they're now back in, but they're much more effective in, in providing for the safety of a neighborhood than a, than a uniform officer who comes there with little ability other than to perhaps make an arrest or, or make some type of investigation that leaves a scar or leaves a, a, a sense of resentment in that community. So gang reduction youth development, those neighborhood-based organizations, I believe should be expanded uh, significantly. They should be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they should not just be for people involving in neighbor disputes, but it should be people who are experiencing homelessness that are having a mental crisis, that are in need of supportive services that a police officer doesn't have to be the remedy for. But isn't there some level of liability sending people out to certain situations like that, like domestic disputes and neighbors fighting? I mean, that's dangerous for police officers. I can yes. imagine it being dangerous for social workers or gang interventionists and so on. There is, and this is not an area that was without risk. In fact, it's one of the reasons why uh, policing is involved in so many different things mm -hmm. is because we end up having a society that says, well, we'll have a police officer do it because a police officer will know how to handle it. A police officer will make sure that everyone is safe. And at the same time, we see when a police officer falls short, mm -hmm. then, the, then the police officers are criticized. Uh, there are examples of this alternative services that have happened here today in Los Angeles. We have outreach workers for LASA, the Los Angeles Housing Service Authority, that have outreach and engagement in neighborhoods. It's not 24 hours a day, mm -hmm. it's not seven days a week, and it certainly isn't the level that it should be. Uh, and that's what I'm saying. Let's look at those examples and let's put them on steroids. We really need to expand the number of personnel that are in those functions so that instead of a 911 caller uh, who needs to have some service provided, presently that's a police operator saying, well, I don't have a, an outreach worker, I don't have a mental health professional, but I got a police officer, so I'll send you the police officer. Where does that, who does that lie on though? Is it the council members? How do, how do we get that plan in action? It's gotta, it's gotta start now. It's gotta, and I know the council's working uh, amongst themselves. I know the mayor's, the mayor's working with the council to, to identify alternative services. And as a police department, uh, we are, we stand here to be a partner in this mm -hmm. and to identify, there is a criteria, there's a matrix. Every call cannot be diverted. There are instances of violence, domestic violence particularly. Mm -hmm. I think we've got to be careful about the, uh, the safety of everyone involved right. and also the safety of the survivor, mm -hmm. of the victim of domestic violence and their family. But there are so many other low-level neighborhood disputes, uh, little disorders that are happening because of people experiencing homelessness or others, that we are the first in. We should be the second or third in. And when that happens, then we'll see policing in Los Angeles, I think, Continue, uh, build and deepen the trust that we so much want. Okay. Um, according to the LA Times, you've been demanding more po power to fire or discipline police officers. Do you not have the power to fire a bad cop outright? And if not, 
what is the price process of getting rid of bad cops who engage in gross misconduct or unjust use of deadly force so in the city of los angeles we're what's called a charter city which means it has like its own constitution mm -hmm. and it gives every department certain powers in lapd's case the chief is a general manager my authority though to fire or remove an officer is i can only recommend it uh, it then goes that officer has a right to go before an a tribunal a, a trial board is what we call them these are sometimes two command officers and a civilian, or now the officer can pick three civilians to sit and listen to the evidence. Mm -hmm. And if the officer is found guilty, that trial board has the authority to fire the individual or to give them a lesser penalty. Most of, it, most of the time it works fairly well. Last year we had 26 of these trial boards in the city of Los Angeles. And in 15 instances they were found guilty as I believe the evidence mm -hmm. showed they were guilty, mm -hmm. and they were fired. But in, in two other instances, they were found not guilty, and I'll not quibble with the fact that if the facts weren't there, that's fine. But in the seven other instances, the, the panel found the person guilty as charged, but chose not to fire them. The charter, the, the current rule book, prohibits me from firing that officer now. There's nothing I can do with that officer except allow him or her to be back on the department. Now, we have 13,000 people in the organization, 10,000 mm -hmm. of them are sworn. Those mm -hmm. numbers are getting a little reduced, mm -hmm. but the vast majority of the men and women will never experience a trial board. They'll never, be, they'll never face these type of serious charges. But in the rarity in which they do, I believe that as a chief executive officer, as the boss of LAPD, if you will, not to be a power monger, mm -hmm. but I think I should have the authority to hire and to fire. I think the people look to the chief and hold him or her accountable for his or her decisions on this. And there's been instances, not, which, not just with my tenure, but with my predecessors, that they have tried to fire someone and the trial board process has interfered or prevented them from doing that. The public never understands everything I've just talked about, and all they know is the chief didn't fire them. That's why I asked that question, because people think it's as simple as you being able to fire a bad cop, but other agencies around the country have different policy that they may Absolutely. fire a cop on the spot, but here in Los Angeles, it's different. And it's different for the right reasons when when the changes were made I believe back in the if you go back nearly a hundred years ago is when these rules were put in place LA was a very corrupt town mm -hmm. uh, the, the the political cronies uh, had organized crime and frankly the police were part of that organized crime and people were hired or promoted or fired based upon whether or not they were uh, doing political favors mm -hmm. and so this gave those police officers they wouldn't be wrongly accused by a mayor who was corrupt mm -hmm. uh, and the chief would uh, would fire them just to to you know if you will clean the books mm -hmm. uh, so that gave them that that insular um, a bit of insulation and we got a better police department for it we got a professional police department because police officers didn't no, no longer had to pay uh, if you will dividends to to elected officials but I believe today with the amount of uh, transparency and the and the amount of sophistication that we have uh, that th it's time for us to consider that model that as it is today. Let's look at it again and see, are, is it time for a change? I'm not saying that I should be the final word per se. Mm -hmm. If I were to recommend a person to be fired, or I would say I'm going to fire this officer, this officer I believe should have the right to appeal that. The question is who does that appeal go to? Does it go to the Board of Police Commissioners? Does it go to an outside party, uh, to an outside judiciary review, 
I, I think that those are good, valuable conversations. Uh, I have I believe in the vast majority of the men and women of this organization. I think they they stand for some of the highest standards, and I'm not looking uh, to uh, to set up a system that becomes uh, arbitrary or becomes uh, overly harsh. Mm-hmm. In fact, for the most part, I believe that the the public uh, the public, if it knew more about discipline, it would recognize that officers, uh, when accused uh, and found guilty, uh, do suffer uh, consequences, do suffer uh, penalties. It's one of the rules in Los An- in California that could and could benefit from some change. Mm-hmm. I'm prohibited by state law to tell you if I pen- if I penalize an officer, I give him five-day suspension. Mm-hmm. I can't actually tell you that. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that I discipline them, mm-hmm. but I can't tell you what that penalty is. And I think that's another consequence of this moment of reform and reflection is would, would the public's confidence in Los Angeles and in LAPD officers improve if they knew more about what happens when an officer falls short, when an officer makes a mistake or an officer does something wrong? Mm-hmm. And I think that I believe that that transparency uh, is would help people uh, rest assured because they know cops are going to make mistakes. What does transparency look like? Is it um, the public is privy to their background checks or what does transparency look like? Transparency looks like this. An officer stops you and uh, is rude to you, Mm -hmm. is discourteous, and you make an allegation of misconduct. And now the officer is wearing body-worn video. We go back and we look at the video and, yes, the, the officer was rude. All I can tell you today is that the officer was found that I sustained the charge, he was found guilty of it, and I'm applying discipline. Mm-hmm. You don't know if that discipline is a, a, a reprimand mm. or if it's suspension. We or always removal. hear administrative leave. That's been like yes. a big word. Like every time a cop is in trouble or accused of, uh, you know, um, excessive force or something like that, they're always getting something like administrative leave or without pay or with pay. I mean, well, I think, and officers should have, you know, there are there are rights that officers should have. They're 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 people like everyone else. They're going to make mistakes, and they deserve uh, to be treated fairly and with dignity and respect, as as every member of our society. Does, does. that fall under the um, qualified immunity? So, qualified immunity is a uh, is a different standard that deals with uh, with courts and deals with civil court cases of whether or not an officer's actions uh, qualify or that he or she has qualified immunity from being personally liable. Mm -hmm. There's a number of professions that have qualified immunity. Generally, they're in high-risk or uh, high-stress positions where we ask people to do very difficult jobs, Mm -hmm. and we we give them a certain amount of immunity so that they recognize that to do your very best, but if you're going to attract people to that profession, you need to make sure that they understand they're not going to lose their home, they're not going to lose their entire livelihood if they make a mistake. I, I there's a lot of people that want to see that dismantled like I think because that it's a lot of rogue cops are getting away with stuff under that so I think that more information on this is worthwhile I think mm-hmm. that understanding uh, there's a perception that qualified immunity means that if an officer goes out and shoots someone and and was wrong that he or she won't face criminal prosecution mm-hmm. that's not that's not what this qualified immunity speaks okay. to. This qualified immunity speaks to that individual who felt that the officer's actions were wrong. There was an illegal search, mm-hmm. that their car was impounded when it mm-hmm. should have been, that they were uh, that they were struck. Or uh, they did damage during a police a raid or something? Raid, yes. Okay. Is that now they can sue 
Mm-hmm. They, the, you know, they're the plaintiff. They sue the city. They sue the police officer. And let's, and let's suppose that the, op, that the actions that the officer made a mistake. Mm-hmm. The officer hit the wrong, went to the wrong door or, okay. or fell short. Today, there's the rules of law provide that the victim uh, is compensated, but that the officer uh, in that instance may not suffer uh, personal damages unless they had a wanton disregard and they act recklessly. There are, again, I think this is an area that as we move through the summer of reforms, that a lot of things have been brought up. And what I'm proud about is, the, for instance, management and labor this past summer, when we, lo- when we saw the justice bill in D.C. Uh, in the House, and it was being proposed for changes in policing and standards and, and accountability and requirements, uh, we, uh, the Los Angeles Police Protective League, and the San Francisco Police Union and the San Jose Police Union took out full-page ads in major newspapers across America and said, we stand ready, recognizing that as there's racism in America, there's racism in our department, and we stand ready for reforms. We are not, we are not the obstructionists. We stand ready for it. And it was a bright moment for me because as a police manager, as a leader, at times it, it feels like we're, it, that people are pitting us against each other. There are measures of reforms that have already taken place this summer that I have not seen in this short period of time for decades. Yeah, a and, lot has changed. And, I was oh, go ahead. Well, and and in that conversation has been labor unions that have stood that have stood there as well and saying, "No, we're ready for this. We need to do this. This is going to improve the profession." The department we have six core values, and one of them, the last one, is quality through continuous improvement. I look forward to this moment, as much as we've had historic reforms, I look forward to this moment for us to make further reforms. One of those things that we need to be done, though, is we need to, we need to look and listen and learn what these terms mean and really reflect as a community what is it that we want our police to do. And I want to have the ability to attract men and women to this profession of a life of service, but then for them to say, this is a life of service that I can, I can go and invest my entire life in, and it's going to treat me fairly. It's going to treat me with dignity. And I'm going to be able to be um, to have a family and to have a livelihood that is not jeopardized by a mistake. Okay. Let me ask you, how is racism dealt with in the LAPD? And what are you guys doing to attract more African Americans to the force? So race in Los Angeles for LAPD has been a matter of us to find equity, to find an, uh, a fairness, to find an openness that we want and, and desire to have members of all communities be represented in our department as whether it be sworn or civilian. Mm-hmm. And I'm proud of our history. When we look at the racial diversity that we have as a department, just in the last 30 years, we went from a, a, a department made up of primarily male Caucasians to a, to a racially diverse department that has nearly 20% women about 19% uh, of, our, of our sworn department is, is made up of women, of our about 9.5% African-Americans. So we're actually a little higher than the proportionality mm-hmm. for, uh, the, the, for African-Americans in Los Angeles. 49.5% Hispanic and about 8% Asian Pacific Islanders. So we're actually a, a, a workforce now of minorities, if you will. Uh, versus where we were 30 years ago. That's a process of outreach. Mm-hmm. That's a process of ensuring that we our selections are fair, that we have training that has that recognizes the value of, of Do you everyone. have those things? 
we have them, but we're still working on making them even better. Mm -hmm. I think that currently we're, we're working with our personnel department as far as hiring standards. Uh, we looked at the use of cannabis, for instance, which is now a lawful uh, narcotic or lawful mm -hmm. drug, much like alcohol is for adult use. And it's taken us some time, but we're finally getting uh, changes in some of our background standards to be reflective of the contemporary policing today. Mm -hmm. And that's important because some portions of our communities are more impacted by these circumstances than others. Finances, for instance. Some, uh, we recognize that we're, we're here to hire people, mm -hmm. but we've seen, particularly in African-American candidates, that they've, had, they've suffered from some setbacks with keeping a job, maintaining, uh, maintaining employment, and maybe they've suffered some setbacks in their credit. So I'm really proud of the last one to two and a half years where we have, have brought more realistic standards so that we're not excluding otherwise very viable candidates to be members of this organization. Yeah. And then lastly, internally, mm -hmm. we need to not just hire on the front end, not just have, not just be representative in our most basic ranks uh, with diversity, but our entire rank structure needs to be representative. I'm proud of our of my ability to make appointments such as Regina Scott, uh, first deputy female black deputy chief for South Bureau, and others that have mm -hmm. stepped in now. Uh, Amanda Tangarides or the Community Safety Partnership Bureau. Uh, these are women of color mm -hmm. that I believe bring a wealth of experience, perspective, and really demonstrate to other African-American women within the organization and prospective candidates that we have a seat at the table for you, that be a part of the change, that you can be a part of the new LAPD for 21st century policing and see us continue to work and develop trust in our neighborhoods. Okay, I wanted to know what, in your opinion, can be done to improve cultural sensitivity training and how thorough are the background checks of these police officers? We know they check, like you said, your credit, um, but do they check ties to any extremist groups or? Um yes, so let me start with that part first okay. and then I'll get back to the cultural sensitivity. Mm -hmm. um, we, we test for the entire person. And what that means is we look to interview the individual, do, there's a psych evaluation, there's medical, there's physical, um, there's a, a cognitive interview to mm -hmm. understand why you want to be a police mm -hmm. officer, what motivates you. But we also look to the family. We also look to their friends and their support structure. And we also look at their social media. And we look at, the, at tattoos or mm -hmm. markings. Mm -hmm. And so we have unfortunately lost uh, very otherwise viable candidates because we find that in a you know, time two, three, five years ago, they made posts and they made some expressions that question whether or not they have racist Do you check their ideologies. social media now? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Okay. So it's important that everyone, if they're a young person listening here today or, or a young adult, is that that's such an echo chamber at times that they need to recognize that employers, all, not just policing, but employers all across uh, all industries are look to that as an expression of who the person is and mm -hmm. how, what defines them when no one's looking. So, um, so there's that aspect. So we, do, we are aware that there have been and we have identified individuals who've had uh, white supremacists or have had racist rants or, or outbursts, and that has allowed us to exclude them because of just that, 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 that disposition is there's just no room here for that. Okay, so what happens if you see that after the officer is hired? If you happen to see on their Facebook they're having these types of rants or mm -hmm. these types of posts, what, what happens once they're hired? So we investigate those. Those are mm -hmm. allegations of misconduct. Mm -hmm. And we walk a tender line with First Amendment rights. But a police officer, being a police officer, is a privilege. It's not a right. Mm -hmm. It's not something that you're guaranteed to have. 
and your expressions on and off duty, if they uh, undermine your authority or your position as a police officer, uh, you can be removed for cause. And so, and we've, we have taken not just disciplinary action, but we've uh, taken severe disciplinary action against people who we believe uh, their, their expressions in social media are racist or homophobic, uh, are gender biased, mm -hmm. and, and has impacted their ability to be a supervisor or to work as a police officer because the public's trust in a police officer is the most sacred matter. And so what they do, say on duty is important, what they do off duty is important, and what they do in the social media realm is absolutely something that we watch and monitor. Lastly, let me get back to the cultural sensitivity. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an area that I'm proud of in the work that we've done in the last year to 18 months, and we're still very much in the throes of it. Um, last year, we, we celebrated our 150th anniversary as a department. Okay. And we, uh, a lot to be proud of but also a lot of dark chapters, a, mm -hmm. lot, of, uh, a lot of pain and, and angst and, and communities across Los Angeles and individuals that while we celebrated, they did not. Because back in the day, you guys had quite the reputation uh, uh, yep. that outshined any police department across And it the was country. one of intimidation and mm -hmm. suppression and containment racism. and racism and homophobia. And there, it, it was in my my tenure uh, coming into the organization that officers weren't even allowed to participate in the gay pride parade uh, on on or off duty in uniform mm. and you know the so there was there's prejudices and bias that our organization's gone through within my own tenure here and one of the things that we came from this was that we need to go back and look at our history and be more realistic about it and be more honest about it there's been many great leaders but there's also been missteps by those leaders mm -hmm. and we have a tendency to kind of shine People's past and uh, you know and um, um, your um, your past always seems like it was always better than you know it, we reminisce about the mm -hmm. great times mm -hmm. didn't feel so great mm -hmm. when you really start slow, slowing it down thinking about it but we have a tendency to look back with and wax on about how great things were and as a department we d have done the same and what we're missing with that is that there are still scars and there's still injuries within communities throughout Los Angeles and neighborhoods that remember 39th and Dalton, mm -hmm. that remember uh, Osborne and Foothill, uh, that remember when LAPD used battering rams, when LAPD made hurtful remarks, and, and, who's, and when we had Operation Hammer. Do officers today who are 25 years old, how do they remember that? Many of them don't. Mm -hmm. Because many of them were not here. I was. I met a couple of officers just the other day, and um, I. I went to. Um, my daughter went to Hart High School up in Santa Clarita, mm -hmm. so I was wearing a shirt nostalgically. You know, she's in college and she's mm -hmm. out of the town. But as I met this officer, he says, "I was a Hart High graduate." I said, "Oh, really? What year? Two thousand one?" And it's like, "Oh my gosh, I felt, I felt so old." <laughs> and, but it it reminds us all that. That this badge represents 150 years of history, and in reality, policing represents all the way back beyond before 1619. But let's just talk about 1619 and the and the slave trade and the policing policing's role in that, and that is still very alive today. Yeah. And as such, how does an officer or a supervisor or a command staff officer, how do they demonstrate an understanding and an appreciation, uh, and to recognize that that truth and reconciliation of that moment that that has happened so that they can demonstrate a, a worthiness of being trusted, of the fact that I don't represent that, but I know this badge does, I know this uniform does, but that's not what I've done or what, and what my commitment is, is nothing about those values that were then, 
but I need to still own it because I'm still wearing it. Proud, proud of this badge. It's one of the, one of the most iconic badges in, Amer- in America, if not the world. Mm-hmm. But to some, it's also most some of the most intimidating and frightening. So our history now, cultural sensitivity, is to provide training not just in the academy, but to follow it up outside the academy so that even our station houses have a history of what that station or what that area represents. How do how do do you do that? Is that implemented in the? Because I read that part of the training is mostly in the classroom. Yeah. So where does this cultural sensitivity training come in, and what are you, how are you teaching them to be sensitive yeah. to different cultures? So what a couple of things is first of all, it's not us. Uh, this is all of us. Meaning mm-hmm. we've invited. Uh, stakeholders from throughout all a number of communities around Los Angeles, not just the black community, but the, the brown community, the Asian Pacific Island community, uh, the LGBTQ community. And we're bringing those stakeholders to come in and help inform us mm-hmm. about what the underlying issues are. I, I recall just even most recently with the civil unrest we saw after the tragic death of George Floyd is the Korean American community was very, very concerned about a, a uh, the, the risk that their community was in, they felt uh, frightened, terribly uh, scared, and yet we didn't see uh, unrest in those communities, but their scar was like as if it was yesterday. So one of the first things we did was when the Azure National Guard came in, which I'm, I'm sorry to say that, that was necessary, but it was necessary, mm-hmm. and one of the first things we did is we posted National Guard at some of these locations that historically in the city uh, fell prey. Uh, and, and livelihoods and lives were lost as a means of assuring the public that we remember and that we and we were and we vowed to not see it repeated. Okay, so are a lot of the police officers um, policing neighborhoods they're from, or so Los that... Angeles is not a is Los Angeles has uh, ten, uh, just under ten thousand personnel working here. Uh, we get about. I, I think the current estimates may be 30 to 40 percent from Los Angeles and then the urban and then the, the region. This is 10 million mm-hmm. people in the county and there's probably 20 million people in, in Southern California. And many of them come from there. But we also get members uh, of this workforce that come from uh, from overseas, places like New Jersey. I'm kidding, but uh, <laughs> but but far away places, places that may not say, "Boy, this is the first time I've never saw L.A." until I was I was a police I was a police recruit here. Um, one of the things that we're interested in doing is ensuring that we sensitize them that they learn the culture cultures of Los Angeles and the histories of the various communities of Los Angeles. Where do they learn that? They learn that currently in the academy, okay. and then they learn that follow-up out in the neighborhoods. Okay. And, they, and by working and having shared relationships with, with stakeholders in the community that say, I'll step into that space and provide perspective. I saw something on the news yesterday where um, these young people, I think it was in Chicago, took young rookies on a tour of the city. Like, they walked them through the neighborhood, said this is – Mrs. Johnson's house, this is our our neighborhood candy shop or mm-hmm. whatever. So they took the people, the citizens, young people, they lived in that neighborhood, took the young rookies that were probably around their age around they didn't they were they walked mm-hmm. around the neighborhood and they said that this program has been effective. I believe it would be. I we have a couple different programs uh, for building trust and relationships that we see each other we work with each other by understanding and recognizing that we're we're here whatever our roles are 
is that we have a sense of neighborhood, a sense of community. Uh, we have a senior lead program in Los Angeles that has to, that's a gentleman that has, a man or woman that has two stripes and a star. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, we currently are having our young officers that come out of the academy work with them for a period of time because they are the individuals that are in those neighborhoods that are walking those footbeats that are in Mm -hmm. the neighborhood watch meetings that are going to the business meetings and learning who makes up the community and they can see a different side of policing not just the radio calls not just the crimes not just the crime victims not just the offenders secondly and this program is what we really want to see grow and expand is about 10 years ago under chief beck he started a community safety partnership which was taking small groups of officers about 10 into a neighborhood that has historically had high levels of violence and, and, and danger and a neighborhood who f- who's felt like at times dominated by the police as an effort or in, our, in our effort to quell the violence, mm-hmm. but in doing so alienated the community. And we were in 10 different sites around Los Angeles. And we recently had a UCLA study that said these officers that have gone there they were selected, they were trained, they got cultural sensitivity training, they learned the history, they met when outreach with residents that are in those neighborhoods, they begin to learn who their names are because they were there for five years. Mm. They learn who the children are, but they also learn who the aunts and uncles, who the parents are, what the challenges are with gangs in the area, and what's allowed or facilitated the helping hands that allowed them to flourish versus a community really having a sense of safety and safe passages and so forth. And so is the, the interventionist, the gang interventionist, do they play a role in that? Yes. Yeah, so in, in the community safety partnership uh, uh, developments, each of those, there's 10 of them in Los Angeles now, uh, they have relationships with our grid providers as okay. well. And they exchange, they don't exchange information as much as because they have a role and a confidentiality with the community that we don't, we don't violate, we, mm-hmm. we respect it, mm-hmm. but we work together without having to compare notes about what a community needs and how a community can flourish and how it can overcome the challenges that historically has had such, uh, such a grievous impact. The benefit, I'll say, is there was a UCLA study that looked at this longitudinally, and it found in two of the 10 sites, that's, those were the test models, that there was less crime, there was less violence, there were less and fewer arrests, and there was more trust in the police. Okay. And that's because when police officers and communities have an opportunity to talk and learn from each other, that they work better together in a shared responsibility of of safety. I agree. Um, Let's talk about fear a little bit. I mean, even why are so many police officers now, all these stories we're hearing, that are so quick to shoot first without um, trying to de-escalate the situation. And most times it's the same story. I feared for my life. It looked like this person was reaching for a gun. Why are cops so scared? Like, Well, so uh, a couple of things. I mean, I can imagine it being scary being out in those streets, but isn't there some type of training? Do you guys implement any type of martial arts into your training? Or yes. Why so, are they but, shooting so quickly now, and, and especially unarmed black men? So in Los Angeles, I, I don't know that that narrative, I mean, I recognize the narrative, and it's, uh, it's not to say that, uh, that there aren't, instances of police violence, of, of police shootings that were unwarranted, that were unjustified. Last year in Los Angeles, we had more than 1.8 million encounters, mm-hmm. uh, radio calls, traffic stops, encounters with people on the street. We had 26 officer-involved shootings. It's the lowest number of officer-involved shootings that we would had in more than 30 years. And it's, I believe, a result of the training, of the tools, 
of, of the expectations and the requirements that people de-escalate and find alternatives and, and find other resources and not and to use deadly force as a last resort. Now, in those 26 instances, we had officers that were shot. We had officers that were fighting with people who had guns and knives that meant them harm. Uh, we had a gentleman with a machete that, that, that was right on top of the person mm-hmm. uh, and, and nearly killed him. And there are instances in this society in which people sometimes experiencing mental illness, other times uh, just uh, violent individuals that do not respect uh, the law enforcement officer and will attack and kill an officer uh, in an effort to escape or to, or to, uh, to avoid uh, being ar- arrested. Now with that, uh, my, our position in an organization is, how do we take our training? How do we take the tools? How do we give expectations and accountability that reinforce that the most, uh, the most uh, powerful thing an officer has as an authority by the people in the community that, that empower him or her with is the use of deadly force. And it has to be held with a reverence for life that is ultimate, that that's the principal matter. And so I'm proud of the work that our men and women have done uh, in improving. Uh, that's about a 45%. Last year's number mm-hmm. is about a 45% reduction okay. from where we were five years earlier. Right. And I believe it's because of good training, good tools. Uh, we hire good people. And when people fall short, we also hold them accountable uh, so that people understand there are consequences to those decisions. Okay. Now, almost everybody I know, even if they have nothing to fear, it's also so very scary when a police officer is behind you. Nowadays, people feel like there's that chance if you get pulled over that you can be shot. And I, I'm concerned about my brothers, um, my um, African-American relatives and close friends. Um, it's scary. Like, what? So a couple points there. Um, I will tell you that as I'm sure you guys you can you there's a certain level of danger as well as you guys pulling over people but oh absolutely but um, so this is um, I recognize and I think in policing we recognize I get nervous and I got well I get nervous you should know you you should know I get nervous too I drive (laughs) um, despite my wife's uh, desires but I will drive sometimes off duty and Mm -hmm. and uh, you know if I'm speeding or going too fast or a black and white comes up behind me you know I get you're nervous come on chief I I, I start watching my rearview mirror I'm checking my speed you know and now I'm like okay am I veering within the lane am I signaling in time it's called black and white fever and and none of us are immune to it however I don't break into a cold sweat and I don't wake up uh, you know, from a, and having nightmares about it. And I know that there are people in our communities that do. And that is in part because of mistakes that have been made in the past. And what I am committed to is uh, I know that our workforce today, our people, uh, we're giving them the training. We, we hire very selectively, very mm-hmm. carefully for mm-hmm. emotional intelligence and for character and empathy. Uh, we also equip them with body-worn videos. And when an officer... Uh, can, is uh, stopping someone if someone feels that they were unjustly accused or, imp- or, or that the individual was rude to them or that they were uh, mishandled that stop uh, we're now, we now have the ability to go back and look at a video record and sometimes we find that the officer was wrong yeah. sometimes the officer unnecessarily escalated a situation they had a bad day and now suddenly everyone else is going to have a I bad day I always hear the phrase comply now complain later I will say though that I also <laughs> will say that I've also seen situations where 
the person that we stopped was having the worst day of their life, mm-hmm. and this was the final straw. Yeah. And they felt that, you know, I pay your salary, so I'm going to give it back to you. Right. Uh, or I'm going to give it to you. And, that, and that's where we're saying, I know you feel like you're stopped because of A, B, or C, but here's the video. Here's what we watch. And sometimes what we found, found is that when we put both the officer and those individuals, when they'll be willing to sit down with us 35 times last year, individual said officer racially was biased policing they stopped me they profiled me and they were willing to sit down with the officer and with and and themselves and watch the body worn video and talk this through it can't happen enough because i think both sides of the conversation improve both perspectives are broadened Um, are we part of our cultural sensitivity part of our training part of our development of our people is to Take the high road, be patient, recognize that when you're stopping, you represent 150 years of history. And you just don't know who the last officer was that stopped this individual or what that engagement was. There's a concept we saw called brushing them off. When you leave, you're leaving a scenario that an officer, if they leave and they've just you know, pushed all the buttons verbally of that, of that motorist or that stop, all they've done is set the next officer up for failure. And what we are looking at today is we're auditing or inspecting our video records, and when we find officers that are doing that, we pull them in. Mm-hmm. And if they're going to remain with this department, they are going to treat people with respect. And I'm proud. The vast majority of the time, we find that. Last year, and I'll close with that, this mm-hmm. aspect, last year we had hundreds of times in which people accused us of misconduct. And uh, in more than 260 of those instances, uh, the body-worn video showed that it was a false accusation. And so th- I think that that speaks well that w- there are officers that are unjustly accused as there are people who are unjustly accused by officers. Mm-hmm. And for us, I think we have to have clarity in this entire conversation of when we, get, when we mess up, we have to fess up. But we also have to know that there are people who try to escape responsibility by bringing in our past evils and our past wrongs as some means of justifying what they're doing today. Okay, a few more questions and we'll wrap up. Now, some believe there is a code of silence within the police department. Why aren't more good cops reporting on bad cops? So there is, I, I do believe that in every profession, there is a, uh, a, a, it's a natural human tendency of we're working this together, we're loyal together, we, we bond, we have this relationship. Uh, it's not just sports, but it's in the medical profession, it's in aviation, a lot of, number of different fields. So we, first of all, we have to know that it's a, human, it's a human trait or tendency that that could occur. And we have to call it out. And we have to and tell people that if you are involved in a code of silence, uh, if you engage in that, that you're, you're going to lose your job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, the recent law that changed with regards to our use of force policy is a duty to intervene. And if you know that the person's actions are wrong, is that you, you just can't stand there and say, well, that's not me, that's him. You have a duty to intervene, and if you don't intervene uh, and stop that, that you're subject to losing your job as much as the person who's committing the misconduct, because it is misconduct not to intervene. So this code of silence can exist. It's a peer pressure. Uh, we see it uh, throughout life, and for the department, what we, uh, what our efforts are, is to root it out, call it out, uh, and also hire people and 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 retain people who have the maturity that says, listen. I'm not part of that. I'm going to follow the rules. And if you choose not to, then it's not just, hey, that's on you. Uh, I'm going to report misconduct. 
reporting misconduct has been a responsibility of officers. And I know that it hasn't always happened. I've seen officers uh, that have lost their career. And the saddest thing about it is they are generally a good officer, and they got drawn to a situation where a bad cop sucked them into his, uh, to this loyalty game, and they ended up losing their job, and their family was devastated by it. Yeah, because those few bad cops, because I'm sure there's way more good cops than bad cops, make the whole force look bad. They do, and there's no one who hates a bad cop more than a good cop. Um, and this code of silence, I do believe today, is much, I have seen, you know, it's one of the traits of being around here a long time is I've seen the profession improve over time. Uh, there was a time when an officer would stop another officer off duty and a professional courtesy provided, whether it was speeding or maybe even drunk driving. And, and that was in my lifetime. And, and that's not, in my view, that's not a circumstance that I see today in part because we have accountability systems now mm -hmm. in place, but also because we, I think, have a smarter cop. Cops today, officers that we hire today, much smarter, uh, uh, great, you know, great value systems, and, it's a, and they have a professional code of conduct. Now, that doesn't mean we don't get, get it wrong from time to time. And when that happens, I'm sorry, and we look back at our hiring process to say, is there some way we could have identified this individual earlier and, and, and kept us from making this, uh, making this mistake? Um, okay, what are your thoughts on the Black Lives Matter movement and the peaceful protests as long, and, and as well as the rioting, how it sparked, um, was sparked by many dec decades of police brutality. How has this encouraged change in you as a person and as the leader of one of the biggest police forces in the country? So I think there's like three or four questions in Okay, there, so. we'll start. Well, what are your <laughs> thoughts on the Black Lives Matter movement? I think it's a valuable movement. I think that racial equality in America, uh, all of us, uh, 330 million people need to understand and remember our origins, how this, how this nation was, was, was built and on whose back it was built. Uh, and the inequalities that have existed for, for decades and systemically still exist. When we look at the pandemic today and, and the COVID-19, we see inequalities uh, based on race. Uh, and so to think that those inequalities don't extend to the criminal justice system. Uh, now, you know, I know many officers will say, well, but I, it, I'm just following the rules. I'm holding people accountable. But what we need to do in law enforcement is recognize, yes, well, the, the people may have enacted these laws, is what is the impact on young people that have come from communities that have challenges in regards to housing, in regards to fa families and structure. And so what I'm proud about is like in LA, we lead the, this, this area, at this region, if not the state, in pre-arrest diversion of young people. And prim primarily people of color, young people of color, that years ago, we would bring before the, the criminal justice system we wash our hands and say, well, now, now it's upon probation and the court system to figure this out. Now we recognize we don't need to put them into that system. What we need is to find community-based organizations that can help give them structure and give them uh, development and get them back on the right path, them and their family. And we see this when we look at truancy. You know, 5, 10, 15 years ago, pol uh, policing in schools would deal would be called upon by the principal and by teachers every time Johnny or Susan or Michael was was acting out and was not following the rules and then policing started now we criminalize frankly matters that really dealt with school discipline and we've gotten out of that juvenile arrests in Los Angeles are down 85% in the last decade 
Not be, and, and I believe it's because we recognize that there are injustices in the system that are baked in the system, and we're willing to think differently about that and, and, and embrace ideas that other groups and advocates have said, you need to try this, and we've done that. Now, Black Lives Matter as an organization um, means many things to many different people. Uh, but I think the common ground that we have is that black lives do matter. Yes. And, and that is, without getting into other ideas about you know, abolishing the police or, 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 or other uh, things that we may, we may differ on, mm -hmm. the core is respect for individuals as individuals, for their rights, their dignity, uh, the compassion, and to move through a time recognizing also that we have not always done that and not always done it recently. And so there is that a bit of humanity, a bit of, of just uh, ability to lean forward and try to build a path forward. Okay. Um, may I ask your thoughts on the whole George Floyd situation? Yeah, yeah it, was, it, it, it sickened me. I look at mm -hmm. that, and I did not see it the first day. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw a passing clip on uh, like a CNN program or uh, one of the channels in just a few seconds, and then I think it was Tuesday night or Wednesday that I actually got time uh, to sit down and watch it. And I just could not believe I issued a statement that day. I called and spoke with Art Acevedo, the chief of, of Houston, and said, major cities, we have, to, we have to do something about this. And policing, historically, we recognize that a picture doesn't say or give an entire story. But what we saw there was a lack of compassion, a last lack of giving this man simple dignity, uh, and it was just unexplainable. Just mm -hmm. it was, and and the frustrating part about it is, I I don't know people in Milwaukee. The, I don't know the police officers there, uh, but I know the police officers here, and I know and I sensed at the time how would that undermine uh, the trust of Los Angeles and the men and women that are out there right now trying to do their best, and. Would that shadow from that, would that, how would that impact their standing in the streets and, uh, and their ability to, to be trusted upon and to be relied upon? Yeah, yeah. And we're still paying for that today. We're still trying to get over Rodney King. And we are. <laughs> we are. Um, two more questions. What are your current priorities and some of the projects you're currently involved with that mean the most, not only to you, but to the city? I think this reimagining of us in, in the sense of realigning responsibilities so that law enforcement, LAPD, is not called upon to do so much uh, is to be responsive to that and to, and to be transparent. And, and that right now, uh, that was months ago mm -hmm. that that happened. Now it means bringing a call, to, a call to arms of asking Los Angeles to call upon its elected leaders and to call upon uh, the city to develop those alternatives. It shouldn't be the police department that's developing them. We've been asked to, and we're willing to sit at a table and be a part of it. But we really need to get to the business of building that capacity because the public still needs and expects some service. They're just asking for it not to be a police officer. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's for policing, we're like, we agree. I spoke with someone, I spoke with another city department the other day, and they're like, well, we just don't want you, want, we just don't want you to think that we're predators and that we're trying to take over your work. I said, no, please. You're more, we welcome you in this space. Law enforcement has for too long been asked to do too much with too little. Mm -hmm. We're looking forward. So that major priority right now is how do we get that capacity going? Secondly is Community Safety Partnership Bureau. 
And and that is the development of neighborhood level engagements where officers and communities have the time to work together and see and hear each other and really um, reconcile for the ills of the past, but change those neighborhoods so that 10 years from now, we can look back and not say this is a neighborhood that's been wrapped in violence for decades, but can say here's a neighborhood that's transformed. The Crenshaw transformation, you know, that's every neighborhood we're in with CSPB is to take it like a Crenshaw transformation and, and then make it and move it forward. Okay. Thank you so much. I have so many other questions, but we're going to have to have you back. In fact, I would love for it to be a situation where you come and we live stream and you take calls from the community. Be happy to. Um, Because, again, I had three pages of questions, (laughs) but I know that you have to get back to work. Um, And I so appreciate it. Is there anything else you would like to add before we close? I would just say thank you for this opportunity. This one of the challenging, most challenging aspects of this COVID right now is that when one of the most trying times in American history, we, have the in, we don't have the ability to come together. We don't have ability to come together and share and talk and listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this gives me an, op- an opportunity, of, uh, a platform in which to share with you. And, and, um, and I welcome the opportunity to have, to have callers come in, mm-hmm. uh, to call in and for us to have, have that dialogue and have that, and for me to hear and listen. Okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That's it. Twenty-five percent of the couples in this country.